Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our member event with Alex Pritz, director of the acclaimed documentary, The Territory. Alex spoke to fellow director Jenny Ash all about building bonds with his contributors, the importance of honesty in the making of the film, and the value of sound design. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Great. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. And um, I'm just um, so excited to talk to you, Alex, um, and, you know, to talk about your um, The Territory, which was just such an inspiring and utterly brilliant film. And it'd be so interesting to hear all about the history of how you made it and, you know, what you did. So, yeah, I think that, um, should we just start with, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what makes you, you know, what made you want to make films in the first place? Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for for having us here and and doing this. And thank you, Jenny and Sean. Um, I studied science. I didn't study film at all. And so, I mean, I, I had been practicing film since I was a, a young kid, part of this generation, I think of uh, younger people who grew up kind of skateboarding and skiing and filming each other doing silly things um, and and then posting it on the internet in, in the early days. But I studied science and was really interested in climate and, and climate science. And then at the end of my academic time, realized that film was actually the, the medium that I was most drawn to. Um, and that it felt like we actually knew quite a bit about the, the climate science. Um, and that the, the bigger gap there was people's motivation to do something about it or their, their understanding of how it was going to impact their lives in a more personal way. Uh, and so I worked on a couple different films about conservation issues, uh, but really started as, as more of a cinematographer working on other people's films, um, shooting and learning my way around set. And I think especially in documentary, cinematographers do a lot of that decision, directorial decision making in a way. Uh, and this is the first feature film that I've made. And so, yeah, it's been a, a really interesting journey. Wow. What an incredible kind of first film. I mean, it's so multi-layered and moving and amazing. It's really. Um, what brought you to this particular story, Alex? Um, it kind of old school in the way that I, I initially got involved. You know, I'm, I'm American. I'm white. I'm not indigenous. Um, but had read about the work that Nadinia, the activist in our film, had been doing to protect the rainforest and protect indigenous rights. And she's just such a magnetic, fiery, wonderful personality. Um, and I, I was really moved by her work and her passion and dedication. She was doing this work in a part of the world where nearly everybody was against her, in the state of Hondonia, where Bitate, the young indigenous leader, and Nadinia, the activist, live more than 80% of people voted for Bolsonaro in, in the 2018 election. And so they are in the heartbed of agribusiness and anti-environmental, anti-indigenous sentiment. And here's this you know, amazing 60-year-old woman proudly, boldly standing up and fighting for what she believes in. Uh, and so I reached out and sent her an email and said, I love the work you're doing. I think you're the most inspiring person I've ever heard of. Um, and if this candidate, Bolsonaro, wins the election that's coming up, this was back in 2018, so we were hearing the campaign rhetoric. Um, I said, you know, if he wins, it seems like your life is going to become really different. The whole situation is going to change. And I'd love to come meet you and kind of document 
what this this period of your life looks like. And at first we thought maybe it'd be a short film, largely focused on, on Nadinia as this environmental protector. Uh, and it, it really quickly grew as soon as I got there. Um, I shot for about a month on the first trip and uh, things just started happening so quickly that it, we realized this was gonna be a much bigger project. And, Nadine introduced me to the Uruwao, this indigenous community, and also really pushed me early on to try to critically investigate what she considers to be the source of this conflict, um, which are the settlers and farmers that are invading this indigenous territory. And, and she said, look, you know, they operate with near total impunity. Go talk to them because they're the ones causing this violence and destruction. It's not us. You know, we're the recipients of this conflict. And to, to her, that was, you know, a deeper and, and more effective story to tell. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we ended up here where we are now. Great. I mean, she's just, you, you fall in love with her within a few seconds on screen. She's such a heroine, isn't she? That's I also like, like, you know, Bitato's amazing character as well, isn't he? But, um, but what was it like the very first time that you went to meet the Uruwao? Yeah, so Nadinia, the only reason I was invited or able to meet the Uruwao is through Nadinia. You know, she has a 40-year relationship with this community. Um, and our Brazilian producer, Gabriel Lushida, who's been working with the Uruwao and Nadinia for about six or seven years when I first arrived. Um, and so, you know, without without them, there would be no, no introduction to have been made. But when I first met them, you know, the elders in this community speak a language called Tupi Kawahiva that's spoken by something in the low thousands of people left on earth. Um, so there's a, a big cultural gap even between, you know, Nadinia and, and Bitete and uh, Gabriel, our producer, and, and these elders. And I realized very quickly that there was a lot of work that I would have to do if we were going to make a film that included this perspective to uh, explain and demonstrate what a film is because these people had never seen a feature film before. So how do you ask somebody if they're willing and interested in becoming part of a film, if they don't, they don't even understand what that is. And so one of the first things I did was bring some extra cameras with me. And before we started really filming, just said, Hey, here's a camera. Here's, here's how it operates. Here's how it works. Interview me, ask me some questions, record, see how that feels. I'll ask you some questions about your kids. Ask me why I'm making this film. Uh, ask me, you know, who's behind the film. Ask me whatever you want. And through that, I think we were able to open up a, a more honest discussion about what a film is, both what it costs and what it's capable of. You know, there's a huge amount of privacy that you're giving up when you let a documentary film team into your life. Eight hours a day, I'm with you. As soon as you wake up, as soon as you go to bed, like it's there's not a lot of privacy. There's also the the huge issue of trust and um, you know allowing somebody else, an editor and a director, to be the ones sculpting and shaping the way that people who've never met you in person are going to think about you. You know, this is the the conduit through which your story will reach millions of people if it's a successful film. On the flip side. Uh, you know, there's this idea of an impact campaign, idea of using the film to help spread a story to people that wouldn't otherwise know about it and the protection that can come from that when you're a small community that's quite vulnerable. Um, you know, often violence happens in places that uh, nobody's looking or asking questions about. And so with a documentary film, you can get a lot more people taking note of what's happening in your community. And well, so you actually demonstrate that in the film, don't you? You know, like... 
the very fact of filming it makes the government, um, you know, protect the land more, which is incredible. I mean, you know, those words yeah. at the beginning, um, there won't be an inch of indigenous land left. Um, they're so chilling, those words from both. And when you say yeah. they haven't seen a feature film before, do you, I mean, had, had, did they all have mobile phones or was that something you brought to them? Or, because in our first clip with um, Bitate's um, looking at Bolsonaro making that um, chilling speech and then talking yeah. to his grandfather, it's just what, I mean, with, had, did they see stuff on phones and things before you came? Or? Yeah, so the younger generation, like Bitate, the 18-year-old protagonist of the film, were fully media literate. It was the elders that were, you know, kind of uh, less acquainted with, with the media or even politics and the Brazilian state. But Bitate and this younger generation, Bitate was on Instagram when I first met him. You know, he is a digital child and understood intuitively the power of the media and the power of story and photography. And so, yeah, he, he became a huge part of our ability to speak to this elder generation all of the equipment and technology that you see arriving in the film is stuff that Bitate and this younger generation were able to get themselves. You know, they went out and wrote grants and got drones and GPS and all sorts of technology that helped them better protect their land against these invading farmers. Um, should I give like a brief rundown of what the film is about? Because I maybe I kind of like went went into it straight away. Oh yeah. I mean, I think everyone here has watched it, but yeah, it'd be. Oh, yeah. okay. If everybody's seen it, then that's good. Okay, never mind. I'll I'll skip that. Well, no, no, do do. I think it'd be useful because people might watch well, okay, it. Okay, yeah. If anybody yeah. hasn't seen it, um, yeah. it's it's the territory is a film about this indigenous community of 183 people that were forcibly contacted and assimilated by the Brazilian state in 1981, uh, and they live on an area of about 18,000 square kilometers of old growth rainforest, which is the only rainforest in the area surrounded on nearly all sides by farmland, um, you know, monoculture, beef and soy plantations. And under the Bolsonaro presidency, um, settlers and farmers are encouraged and emboldened to begin invading that land and trying to take it for themselves, turn it into private property. And so the film follows these two competing perspectives, the settlers, and farmers um, who view the land as a commodity that they would like to, to take for themselves. And this indigenous community that's lived on this land for thousands and thousands of years and are fighting to protect it, not only for themselves, but also for um, you know, the sake of, of the planet and you know, keeping these trees standing. Great, well, that was really impressive. <laughs> um, and how long did the film take to make? What period was it filmed over? So, yeah, we started in 2018 um, during the presidential campaigns, and then we see Bolsonaro take office on January 1st of 2019. And then we continued filming through 2021. Uh, the film started at Sundance in early 2022. And then actually, we don't advertise this, but I went back to Brazil and shot a little bit more. We reopened the edit added some new things, changed the sound design post Sundance. And so the version that I think everybody here has seen is, uh, you know, kind of an updated version that includes a little bit of footage from, from 2022, actually. Oh, interesting. Uh, we'll have to talk about that later, why, why you did that. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. And um, 
How how much time did you actually spend with the Uwawel before you started filming? How much? How long did it take to kind of build those bonds? Well, it, you know, it was different for different parts of each community. Uh, you know, Nadinia was ready to go from day one. She was, was ready for the camera, loved being filmed, um, and not in a way that was off-putting, but just. You know, she's very open and vulnerable on camera and has no problem um, with cameras being part of her life. Bitate and, and the younger generation were, were really open to it and eager and curious to learn more about filmmaking. Um, with the elders, people like Bitate's grandfather, it was months and months of conversations before we were even going to bring cameras near him. Um, and so sort of varying levels of conversations. The interesting thing about the Uruwawao is that they operate by consensus. So there are six different villages spread out across their territory. And in order for something like a documentary film to begin taking place, they have to reach a unanimous decision that this is okay. And so representatives from each of the six villages come together, sit and talk, and that can take you know, hours, it can take days or weeks even before everybody's on the same page. Sometimes it never happens. And so for us, you know, we waited a few months before even having those conversations. And when they did, it, you know, it took several weeks, I think, before people were really on board with a film team coming in. And then we had to redo that every time I would return to Brazil. You know, it wasn't a given that because we'd gotten access at the beginning and formed these relationships that that was going to carry over um, when I saw somebody three months later. Um, and so the constant process of, of checking in and, and reaffirming that this was still something everybody was into, you know, even years into the filming process. Wow. Yeah. So you, I mean, you created such a kind of sense of intimacy with all your characters and they actually feel really empowered throughout as a kind of participatory lens from the beginning. Um, I mean, did, did you um, spend a lot of time doing those workshops you mentioned? How, how did that work? Yeah, the, the workshops in the beginning were, I would say, you know, we, I would come for a period of between like two weeks, three weeks and like two or three months at a time. Um, and so those first trips were longer and, you know, it took uh, definitely over a month, maybe a month and a half of these conversations with the Uruwau before it felt like we were ready to start filming together. Um, and yeah, I think in, in many ways, it, it's a slower process than I would have wanted. Like things were happening really fast. It's January 1st, Bolsonaro's president, there's invasions, everybody's reacting. And it felt like we were in, in many ways missing a lot of really important moments because we were taking so long with these discussions about, um, you know, what a film is and, and how it operates. And, um, you know, people would say, okay, you know, who's funding the film? Okay. I want to meet them. I need to meet the people that are funding the film or we can't go forward. Say, look, it's, you know, you can't meet the Sundance Institute. Like it's, it's not a person. It's, it's an, uh, an institution. <laughs> I don't know how to introduce you to them. Yeah. Um, and so just lots and lots of these conversations about who's behind the film, what's happening with the film, you know, what's the purpose of the film and recursive versions of these conversations with every different individual. Uh, but then when stuff got really hard later on, you know, there's this death. Ari is tragically killed um, sort of midway through production. Um, when Nadine's daughter is potentially kidnapped, 
we'd had all of these really hard conversations early on, and we'd had so many of them that the trust felt like it was really there. And in those moments, we could just go, you know, we didn't have to have new versions of these conversations about why we were doing what we were doing or what the purpose was, because it had all been laid out in this really consensus-driven approach from the beginning. And so it's different, you know, film teams are like hierarchically directors and producers who make decisions and other people who implement them. And that just didn't work with the Uruwao community. We had to operate on their terms and, and could not try to ask the community to adapt to the way that film teams are organized. And, you know, it had its uh, challenges, but I think it's something that I'll try to bring with me into whatever I work on next, the, the importance of spending that time early on um, building that trust. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, you, it allows you to capture, you know, casual moments that feel so pro profound and global and moving. And um, I, 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 but just as we go into our first clip, um, when um, Batate is watching Bolsonaro on the phone and then um, talks to his grandfather, which is one of my favourite moments in the film, um, I was just wondering, with a, um, a moment like that, how much did you shape that as a director? Is that just a moment that you just happened to capture, or was it something that you know? Did you um, you know plant the seed of what you wanted them to talk about beforehand? Yeah. So this um, this was a scene that we. Uh, I, I, I talked to Bitate and was like, you know, I think one of the things we're missing right now in this story is like a perspective of the older generation. Do you think your grandfather would be open to, you know, being part of the film? How do you think he would feel about that? Um, and, you know, we kind of, we talked through it quite a bit beforehand. I didn't like show Bitate scenes and things as we were editing, but I was really open with him about how I saw his arc shaping up, you know? He was an 18 year old kid. I was pretty open from the beginning. I see a huge amount of potential in you. Like you've just become the leader. Uh, you're gonna face a lot of challenges. We wanna be there through those challenges. We, you know, I see this as sort of a coming of age story in many ways for you. Um, and so these are kind of the, the ways that we see your character developing over time. I didn't wanna show him the final version of the film and have him feel like there were any surprises there. And so this is one of those scenes where I was you know, I was definitely kind of directing it, not in the moment, um, getting involved in the actual conversation. Um, I also couldn't understand what was being said for the most part. It was in Tupi Kawahiva, this language spoken by, you know, thousands well, of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it, it all came together in a really nice way. But I, Bitate's grandfather is also just a wonderful person. And, yeah. you know, anything that involves him, I think, has this, this warmth to it. Great. Should we play that clip? Sure, yeah. And can we talk about it after? Because Yeah. Know, <laughs> okay. We watched a clip from the territory, 11 minutes and 20 seconds in, as the family discussed Bolsonaro's speech. That's such a great scene. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favourite scenes in, in the whole film, I think. And one of the reasons is this was one of the places um, post-Sundance that we really opened up. Uh, and we had had this archival footage that you see there which th that's real archival footage of the Uruwau during first contact. That's Bichite's grandfather in one of the shots. I was going to so, ask you that. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if it's some kind of drama recon. Or <laughs> that's real. No, that's amazing. That's real Incredible. 16 millimeter film footage from a, an old documentarian, Vincent Corelli, 
who wow. went down there um, and and shot this. And so we, you know, we tried to incorporate that footage in so many different ways in the edit, and it, it just felt like we really want to get this in there. We don't know how to do it because it always broke up the flow of this film that doesn't have narration. Yeah. And it was relatively light touch in terms of the way that we introduce new characters. Everybody has to feel kind of connected to one another. Um, and it felt didactic and it felt like a little, you know, history lesson. And then after Sundance, we had this moment where we we're just like, oh my gosh, it needs to fit into that conversation subjectively so that we can have Bitete kind of react to this footage and internalize it along with him. And so that was one of the things we did is I went back to Brazil and did an audio only interview with Bitete's grandfather, asking him about first contact and this, this period of time, and then used that as sort of the narrative bridge underneath this archival footage. So it still feels like it's, you know, by the fireside in a way, and it's Bitete's grandfather's same voice kind of carrying you through that. But one of the things I liked so much about that footage and the reason I felt so strongly about including it is that one shot where, uh, you know, they're, they're having this moment of first contact and somebody looks at the camera like, what is that? You know, is that a weapon? Is that a gun? Is that going to hurt me? And that felt like such an important image because that's the community's first experience of the media is this yeah. White long lens, you know, white ethnographic filmmaker capturing their image without their consent, without their knowledge, you know, and they don't know where that image is going to go, what's going to happen to it, and that then speaks to, you know, the the section of the film where Bitete and Tangai and the rest of the Uruwa pick up the cameras themselves, and it moves this from being a story about Bitete's coming of age into this intergenerational story about an entire community's relationship to the media and narrative autonomy. And a lot of these much bigger ideas um, are able to come out, I think, through that one little scene juxtaposed with the way that images are made in act three of the film. Yeah, I mean, it encapsulates what the whole film is about, but he's his voice is so poetic for grandfather. I mean, it just it's heartbreaking listening to his words. And I think the um, imagery that, that I'm now knowing that's real, that's just like, you know, that gives me shivers down my spine. I wasn't totally sure because it seems so yeah. perfect. I wasn't sure if you, it was something you'd created in a, but um and, you know, even all the pots and pans hanging up and everything, it's just beautiful. It was a really lyrical moment in the film. And it's great. One um, of the things... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, please. Well, one of the other things this scene reminds me of is um, when I first began these conversations that we were talking about before with the community about films and how they're made and all this stuff, before we really started capturing any images, I was there listening to one of these same... Um, you know, consensus-driven conversations. There was a linguist from UC Berkeley who had come and wanted to help write down Bitete's grandfather's language to Pikawahiva so that it could be taught in schools and more children could learn it, keep the language alive. And so the elders came and they sat and they talked and they said, you know, we're actually really not into this idea um, because we, we know what happens when outsiders like you come and write down our knowledge, you're going to own it. And then we're going to have to pay to speak our language. And we were not interested in that at all. And for me, that was this really important realization that so much had been taken from this community by people that spoke the same language as me, who looked like me, who behaved culturally like me. 
And conversely, this idea of ownership and autonomy was going to be really important for the film going forwards uh, if we were going to work on this together. And so that that was part of you know the the thinking that went into this participatory approach that we we talked a little bit about earlier. Well, that's so inspiring, and what a privilege as a filmmaker to be to be able to actually help those. I mean, the camera becomes one of their greatest weapons, doesn't it? Like allowing them to share their story and by the end of the film they've kind of shamed this indifferent at best aggressive at worst government um into not protecting the settlers and invaders and stuff so um alex tell me more about um bitate he seems so young at the beginning of the film did did he kind of as a person, did he grow in maturity during those three, you know, the three years that you took to make it? I really felt he did watching it, but I was wondering what it felt like for you. Yeah, uh, he has grown enormously. And I mean, even since the film has come out, he's continued to grow in terms of the responsibility he's taking on, um, the way that he comports himself. Uh, it's it's been really amazing to see. He started as a high school kid who was interested in soccer and girls, and you know that's this enormous weight of responsibility that was placed on him when he became the leader. It's the fate of his entire ethnic group rests in his hands essentially, and then on top of that, this added existential pressure of protecting a piece of rainforest that can be seen from outer space, that the Uruwa land is so large. When you're looking on Google Maps on your small computer screen at South America, coast to coast, you know, the Atlantic to the Pacific, you can see their land as this dark green island of rainforest. And it's the gateway to the rest of the Amazon. So if it's cut down, um, we really are looking at a sort of downward spiral of, of climate catastrophe. Um, and he knows that he recognizes that. And it's a huge amount of responsibility for a young person to take on. Uh, and that was one of the central questions was, you know, is he going to rise to the occasion? And it was an open question um, through a lot of the filmmaking. And, uh, you know, we, we, of course, wanted to be able to demonstrate that he was taking this on. But um, it, it really came together under COVID, I think, and after Ari's death that it, it sunk in for him what it, it meant to be part of this, this fight, you know, that this had real consequences. Um, when, when one of your close friends dies, I think it affects anybody. It affects us as the film team, you know, pretty heavily. It affected Bitate hugely. Um, and then those, those final scenes that I guess we'll watch in a, in a moment where, uh, they arrest this invader and, and you see Bitate really take control of the situation and, and treat this invader both with compassion and a certain amount of gentleness, but also really firm and, and in control of the situation. Um, you know, we I feel totally confident in his ability to lead the Uruau into a, a better future than, than their past has looked like. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. That, that was the scene where I just felt you become a leader you become a man, you know, and he's kind of that kind of slightly giggly teenager before then, and then he, you suddenly, so I'm just going back, tell me about how, how did COVID affect the production? And 
Yeah, COVID was, I mean, so that's one of the other useful parts of that archival section is you see the Uruwaus and especially the elders' relationship to foreign diseases that um, two years after first contact, more than half of their population had died from tuberculosis and measles. And so this idea of a foreign, you know, germ coming in and, and wiping them out was it loomed large in their collective consciousness. And so when COVID came, it was a really serious thing. The indigenous communities across Brazil have lower um, immunity to certain types of foreign diseases. And they took it really, really seriously. We had to as well. And Bitate made this bold decision to say, nobody is gonna come into or out of our territory until it's safe to do so. And we don't know what that means, but probably everybody's vaccinated and, you know, there was no vaccine in sight at that point. So it really, we had to discuss whether we were done with the film, whether, you know, we needed to start editing, if we had enough material and Bitate and the Uruwa were really clear that, um, you know, we weren't done. We still had a lot left to capture and that they felt they could do it themselves if we could provide some better cameras and equipment to them. Um, and especially better audio equipment that they were ready and excited to take on uh, the mantle of production. And I think some of the best scenes of the whole film ended up coming from that. For me as a director, it was really scary in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wanted to build a cohesive visual aesthetic around the film. I wanted to be able to have um, a consistent language that we were speaking in, not you know literal language, but kind of visual language and uh, opening up the filming production process to people that weren't professional cinematographers and everything else felt like a huge gamble. Um, but out of that came some of, you know, surely the, the best scenes in the entire film. Yeah, no, it'd be great to talk in detail in a minute about the difference between yeah. you know, cinematography and yours. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I mean, how did you just, how practically did it work? I mean, you couldn't go to Brazil, right? So, and Presumably, they didn't have Wi-Fi to Zoom or anything. But I mean, how did you communicate? So I I did go back to Brazil. I didn't enter indigenous territory, but I felt comfortable filming with Nadinha and I felt comfortable filming with Sergio and the settlers and farmers. Um, so I continued filming with them. The during the pandemic. During the pandemic. Okay, yeah. Cool. yeah. Um, and I was actually you know, sort of tangentially, I had been a cinematographer on this film, The First Wave, about COVID in New York City. And so, you know, all through production, basically, we were funded by grants. And so I would come back to New York and shoot on somebody else's film as a cinematographer, and then, you know, return back to Brazil and take whatever money I had made and whatever grants we had written and keep working on on this film in Brazil. Uh, And so I had shot for four months on The First Wave. And then after that, wrapped um went back to brazil and we brought some some new cameras with us that were for the uru wow uh, from the very beginning we had been harping on to say about how important it is to put the lav on as soon as you wake up put the lav on don't take the lav off till after you've brushed your teeth at night like please come on, <laughs> it's so important and you know like any teenage kid who's kind of like oh whatever uh, but then when it came time for them to film and we were talking through, okay, what sort of equipment do you need? How are we going to do this? B today was really serious. And he was like, I know how important lav mics are. Don't skip <laughs> on the lav mics, Alex. I want the same lav mics you guys have. Don't, don't shortchange me here. So we got these really cool camcorders that they were Sony. And so they shot an S log, the same color profile that I was shooting on. 
prior and they had two XLR inputs, one for a kind of moisture resistant shotgun microphone. Um, it's obviously super humid in the rainforest. And so we wanted to make sure stuff was going to be pretty durable. Uh, and then it has a second XLR input for a wireless lav. And we got them the same COS 11D wireless lav mics that we had been using. Um, and, and they were pretty nice, compact uh, units. They, they worked really well. Um, and what we did was contactless drops. So myself and our Brazilian producer, Gabriel Ushida, would drive to the edge of the territory, leave a sanitized uh, equipment package, and then depart. Somebody from the indigenous territory would come out, pick up the camera package, and bring it back into their village. And about a year before the pandemic, they did get Wi-Fi. Um, you know, it's not oh, wow. okay. Wi-Fi or anything. It's sort of cell phone based Wi-Fi. Yeah. But so when it rains or anything, you you lose connection. But we were able to do over WhatsApp some lessons. Um, and it wasn't enough to live video, but we would take other Brazilian films, other indigenous films and chop them up. Um, you know, we'd take apart a scene and do kind of like the New York Times anatomy of a scene type thing and say, okay, here's this shot, here's this shot, here's how they move the camera through here. What do we think about how indigenous people are represented in this film? How can we do this better? And just talk through through everything and, and did these oh, lessons. Amazing. Over and you, you could do that all over WhatsApp. That's brilliant. Yeah, we yeah. did it all over WhatsApp. And then there's that funny moment in the film where they had, you know, they take the lens cap off and the camera's in their hands for the first time. And uh, B to is behind the camera actually, and he's interviewing this woman and says, okay, what's your perspective on this mission? And then she's like, what? what's going on? And he says, look over there. Okay, why do I need to look over there? What's that about? <laughs> and she changes her eye line. And for me, it was so funny because it was, we had obviously done, I can't remember what it was, but some lesson about eye line or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or something a couple weeks prior. And they had internalized it, but the shot was so obviously worse when yeah. this like, <laughs> Western rule about where you're supposed to look was imposed on them. And, you know, their intuitive sense of how to film themselves was just plain better than any of the, the rules or lessons or things that, that we could have imparted. Wow. And um, what did you, did you speak English to them? Did you learn um, Portuguese? How, how did that work, the whole language? Um, I started knowing very little Portuguese, um, but by the end of three years, knew enough to operate by myself, interview, edit, you know, operate oh, in Portuguese cool. pretty fully. Um, but Gabriel, our Brazilian producer, was, you know, nothing would have yeah. happened without him, uh, especially yeah. in the very beginning. And he knows some Kawahiva as well, the language spoken by the elders in the Uruwa. So, yeah. yeah. Big team. I'm sure. I'm sure you're part of our family for life now. <laughs> yeah, we're, I think we're pretty linked. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, should we play the um, invader arrest clip? But we're talking about this clip is um, the time that Bita, um, Bitate. Sorry, is it Bitate? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Bitate. Bitate um, yeah. really becomes a leader. Um, and was this something they filmed? This was all filmed by Tangai Uruwa, my co-cinematographer on the film. Oh, cool. Yeah, great. We then watched the forest fire sequence from the film from 32 minutes and 30 seconds in. Um, Sean, have we got any questions? 
We do, yes. We've got one from Justin here. So the question is, um, what is the community's involvement in the journey of the film since its release? So, for instance, have they been involved in any social media, Q&As, any sort of media uh, platforms at all? Yeah, um, they have been extremely involved. Uh, the, the whole point of the film in many ways was to give them a bigger microphone to be able to talk about these issues that affect them most directly. Uh, and so starting, you know, Sundance was virtual and so we were all online, but um, starting at CPH docs in Copenhagen and then moving through all the rest of the festivals throughout the year, there's almost always, I think, been a member of the Uruwau present there. Um, one of the things when we moved to having the film be a, a co-production rather than just, um, you know, a sort of participatory film, which happened under COVID, uh, the Uruwau, we, we formed a, an agreement with them that they would receive an equal portion of the profits of the film as any other production company on it. And so, you know, they've taken that and been able to invest in their community. But aside from that, we've raised money um, for an impact campaign, which involves helping them build a multimedia center within their territory. And so construction has just started on that. It's going to be a fairly large center uh, with an exhibition space, a projector, a place for them to show their own films, um, two editing bays with really state-of-the-art um, computers and editing equipment, a podcast studio. And we've just kind of laid the construction groundwork for that, the foundation. And really excitingly, the timber that's going to be used to make this center is hardwood that the Uruwau surveillance team has confiscated from illegal loggers in their own territory. It's about $200,000 worth of hardwood on the market. Um, and so that's really exciting, as well as, you know, kind of some legislative goals that we've built in the EU. Um, a member of the Uruwau traveled to um, first to Denmark screened the film for some members of uh, ministers of agriculture, food and environment in Denmark, traveled back for the World Food Summit later that year. And then about five, four or five weeks to go, member of the Uruwau traveled to Brussels and screened the film for 150 members of European Parliament, had breakfast with these same members of European Parliament before they went into a vote. And in the plenary session before the vote, four of these MEPs referenced Ari Uruwau, referenced the Uruwau territory as a motivating factor, and then voted yes on the EU's first anti-deforestation bill. So banning the importation of products related to deforestation, um, soy, beef, leather, that's linked to these human rights abuses. And so, yeah, they've, they've been really involved in, in the rollout of the film, as well as discussions about like who we would sell the film to, you know, National Geographic, is one of the few distributors that the Uruwau actually had some experience with. You know, if we'd said, we want to sell it to HBO Max, they might not have had as many opinions, especially the elders. But with Nat Geo, you know, they've been photographed by Nat Geo since the 1980s when they were first contacted. And so they did have experience with that. And, and they felt really strongly that this was a positive step for a company like Nat Geo to, you know, move away from some of the more problematic depictions of indigenous people and people of color around the world and that supporting a film where they were co-producers of it was was a really important step and so yeah we've we've had all of these conversations as openly and, and collaboratively as possible wow so fantastic isn't it that's really um and for me one of the 
big, big strengths of the film is that it, and the thing that makes it so multi-layered and challenging and complicated is having the perspective of the farmers and the settlers. Um, I mean, why was that important to you and how did that come about? Yeah, the, the decision to include their perspective came from some early conversations with Nadinia, who said really clearly that you know, in order to design better solutions to this problem, in order to understand this problem more fully, um, we really need to try to critically examine the ideology and the motivating factors of these farmers that are invading indigenous land, because they're not doing it purely out of hatred for indigenous people, or, you know, there, there are reasons that they're doing this. And it, it's been one of the great victories, I think, of, of the populist far right in Brazil to convince poor marginalized people like these farmers, that their enemies are other poor disenfranchised people like the indigenous Uruwau. When really, you know, somebody like Sergio who spends his days spraying pesticides on a huge field owned by a mega wealthy landowner, um, those pesticides are, are killing him. Sergio knows that. And somehow his resentment and frustration is not directed at the landowner who's employing him, you know, for, for pennies on the dollar, essentially creating a, a surf out of him. Um, it's, it's misdirected at these indigenous people. And so trying to understand that felt like an important way to open up some space in this conversation for solutions that incorporate this rural frontier perspective um, and, you know, maybe provide some alternative livelihoods for these types of people or, or try to help, um, you know, include them in, in that solution. And that's real credit to you, because it would have been so easy to do a kind of black and white, you know, goodies and baddies type film. And actually you managed to be so unjudgmental in the way you portrayed them. And I, you know, Sergio, it wasn't even that he hated the Uruwau, it's just, he said, oh, look, there's loads of land. Why can't we just all divide it up and all have a little bit? And from where he was, you could, you know, he had a lot of empathy with that. You, you know, I felt for him. And that, you know, that yeah. scene with his um, farmer boss, you know, the landowner, it's so shocking. It's kind of, it was like a kind of modern serfdom, slavery kind of, um, you know, felt like. So you, you could really understand all the kind of economic and social pressures that kind of drove them to, I mean, most, may, more Sergio than Martin, maybe, who's, you know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. um, I mean, did, did that chime something within your own history? I mean, really, you know, part of my empathy for them in watching it um, was the kind of romanticism of new frontiers. And, you know, it's the same mythology of the American West, you know, yearning for a better love. I kept thinking about um, all those little House on the Prairie books, you know, of, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's the same kind of mythology that drove, you know, America. Did, 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 you, did you feel that much when you were filming it? Definitely, yeah. I think, you know, there were really obvious ways that these settlers idolized the American West, their big cowboy hats, their belt buckles, the cowboy boots, you know, you see like Texas iconography on some of their hats. Um, and, and that I think is, is there, but that really just betrays this much deeper ideological admiration that they have for the American colonial project. Uh, and this idea of manifest destiny, the idea of divine right to the land, 
Um, you know, Martins especially invokes the Bible really conveniently. He'll say, well, you know, the Bible says you're meant to take the land and multiply and very convenient perversion of be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> Insert this idea that you're owed land in there. Um, but, you know, that that's part of this, this deeper thing that they have going. Um, and I felt really clearly that that mirrored um, some of the mythology of America's founding, this idea that land is empty until some some colonizer shows up and, you know, demarcates it along an XY coordinate and turns it into private property. And for Sergio and Martins, that's the core of why they think they should be celebrated. Martins says, you know, this is how every country, this is how Brazil was created and every other country too. And like, in a sense, he's right. That is how Brazil was created. And Brazilian people that founded the country are celebrated and, and treated as heroes. And so as part of that same legacy, they believe that they should be celebrated and treated as pioneers who are going out and doing this work on behalf of the nation. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely saw a lot of clear parallels there um, between between the U.S. and and Brazil. Um, and you really, I thought it was just so beautifully managed back because you, you never ever excused what they were doing, but you really tried to understand it, which just made for a much, much more interesting film for me. Um, yeah. How, do, how did they feel about the media? Were they kind of skeptical when you first approached them? Or? They were they were very skeptical. Yeah, they feel like the, the media at large has um, been unfair to them and only focused on the parts of their lives that are criminal. Uh, and they point to their fathers and say, look, my dad was encouraged to come here and chop down trees. And, you know, Brazil had a policy akin to the American, um, you know, 40 acres and a mule, where if you went out and you were able to develop the land, you would be given a title to the land and rights over it. And in Brazil, it was that if you chopped down enough of the rainforest, you would get title and ownership over that land. Um, and so in a sense, you know, they're right that they're, they have been criminalized in the past, you know, 50 years. That's because we've woken up quite a bit to the effects of, of deforestation and all this other stuff. Um, one of the things that I just kind of creatively found interesting was trying to take a lot of these Western tropes that exist, you know, obviously in the cinema world, we have a long history of, of Western cinema and depictions of indigenous people within Western movies. And often in the kind of traditional Western indigenous people are this nameless, faceless silhouette on the horizon, you know, and you get these really nuanced, sensitive portrayals of the settlers' lives and their conflicted emotions and all this inner turmoil. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do in this film was, was really try to bring you into the Uruwau community to understand what it was that they were, were battling with, you know, not just externally, but also internally, this fight about whether violence is an appropriate response to the violence that they have been receiving. Um, as well as the, the kind of subversion of the traditional Western in that in our film, the really technologically savvy, media savvy, sophisticated people are the Uruwau who are using the media and drones and all this sort of stuff. And the naive characters in our film really clearly are the settlers who do not understand the historical origins of their thought patterns or the ecological consequences of what they're doing. It's just this very narrow-minded myopic vision of, well, if only I could get this little piece of land for myself. 
Um, and so that was that was one of the things that we we also tried to do, both stylistically drawing on some of the the cinematography of the the Western genre, um, but then flipping it wherever we could in terms of the the narrative and, and the meat of the story. Yeah, that worked so well. It really did. I mean, um, the film really documents a war in real time. Um, how did you kind of juggle the two sides? Um, I mean, how how transparent were you with both sides, and um, how did you keep the you know people the contributors on both sides safe? And yeah. Um... <laughs> That was one of the, you know, when Nadinia came with this idea that we should reach out to these farmers, um, it it was a, a daunting <laughs> challenge for her to pose to us because in some ways they do accept, you know, me as an American more readily than they might accept somebody else. And um, they do feel a lot of impunity and they eventually did allow us to film them doing crazy things like burning down the rainforest. Um, but they're also very skeptical, very guarded, very closed off um, and violent. Um, you know, these are people that uh, the, the rule of law does not extend into the, the areas of the Amazon where they work. And we saw that with, with Dom and Bruno, the you know journalist and indigenous expert who were murdered in the Amazon earlier this year. Um, we're in a, a different part of the Amazon, but a lot of those same issues uh, apply there as well. And one of the things that we understood really early on was that we could not misrepresent ourselves. The worst thing that could happen would be for them to believe that we were spies or that we were infiltrating their group and that we were not who we said we were. And so one of the first interviews I did with the leader of another organization, not Rio Benito, but another invaders group, I sat down and he said, okay, before we start this interview, I'm going to record you and took out his phone and said, okay, tell me your name. Tell me where you live. Tell me your parents' names. Tell me where they live. Tell me everybody that's given you money to make this film and tell me what their focus is as an organization. And, you know, the implication, especially of those last questions was that if we'd taken money from Greenpeace or something like this, that they knew they didn't like, the interview would be over and we would need to leave town immediately and, you know, probably not come back there. Uh, things like, you know, getting photos of myself sent to myself from numbers I didn't know. There was always this sense that you were being watched and analyzed and judged and a couple wrong steps could be really bad for you. And so in order to inoculate ourselves from some of that, we had to be really honest about who we were and what we were doing and, and tell people, you are not the only perspective in this film. We are filming with, you know, people that completely disagree with you and you'll get your chance to speak your truth. And, you know, we'll try to represent that as best we can, but we're going to have competing perspectives in this film. And when I leave here, I might go spend time with them. So don't be shocked if you see my car, you know, mm. parked somewhere else. Um, that and how said, did they respond to that when you said that? Were they... Um, you know, I think they, they understood, they felt like they, they thought that their point of view would win the day. You know, they thought yeah. if they could just get an honest shot at explaining who they were and what they were doing, um, that, that people would really understand. And I showed the scenes that involved Sergio to himself and he signed off on them and said, you know, this looks great. Go tell the world. Um, this is my fight. And my response was, you know, I'm not sure that's how everybody else is going to see it, but 
I, you know, I'm glad that you feel like this is representative of, of who you are and what you stand for. Um, especially during, you know, the summer months where there's a, a cyclical burning season in the Amazon where July, August, September is really when most of the fires are lit and the activity happens. And so I would go spend time with the invaders and somebody else would be with Bitate and the indigenous group. And we couldn't communicate directly between ourselves because if I knew something about where the environmental police were and I was asked about that, I couldn't lie. And yeah. you know, then of course that would be breaching some ethical and, and journalistic standards to be giving up information about a competing side of the struggle. Um, and so I just couldn't know everything. And we would have a third party who would decide what information gets passed between um, the different teams that were working on both sides of the conflict. Wow, that sounds so like um, like really, really a fine line to juggle that because, I mean, say for the fire scene, you, you were with them, but say um, Bitterte was, came and, you know. Um, yeah. But, um, well, we came chose the Association of Rubenito because they were on a different, their territory is huge. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm not sure in terms of, you know, UK land masses, but you think of 18,000 square kilometers. It would right. take weeks to walk from one side to the other side of their territory. Um, and so we we chose the Association of Rio Bonito because they were really working on another side of the territory. And there was very little oh, risk of right, being right, out right, in the forest right. yeah. at the same yeah. time. And the same part of the forest at the same time. How how did you, you and the team feel when Ari was murdered? Did, did that make you scared about your own safety or because that must yeah. have been real kind of nadir? Yeah, that that was uh it, it was horrifying. It was so difficult, I think, especially just being close to the Uruwau and you know, Ari was a, a teacher in a local school there. He has two kids. He has a wife. Uh, his mother is still around. Um, and in a group of 183 people, one person like that, who's 32, he was a pillar of the entire community. He was the leader of their surveillance team. It, it was a loss in so many different ways. Um, you know, not, not just him, but everybody who was connected to him. It was everybody in the community was connected to him. And, um, we all felt it really strongly. He was, I think you, I hope you sort of feel it a little bit in the film, the liveliness and joy that he brought into every little minor interaction, the way that he would wink at the camera or wink at, you know, different people yeah, around totally, him all the time. Totally. I mean, I was so upset watching it when I found out he'd been murdered. I can't, I can, can't imagine what it's like actually having got really close to him as a filmmaker and, you know, and yeah. You know, seeing it, his family, but his his wife seemed so brave because she was there later on in scenes. I mean, she seemed like an incredibly strong woman. I thought she is, yeah. And I think you know, slowly the community is kind of healing in some ways, um, but it, it was it was really difficult. We we weren't sure we were going to be able to continue filming after that. Just you know, emotionally, security wise, everything felt like it was. Um, much much riskier after that point. I mean, was that were, were, was that any time you actually felt really, you know, was was any time when you were filming where you felt really scared or you felt really? Um, 
you know, I think the the risks for me as somebody who was able to leave the Amazon at the end of the shoots and, and return to New York City, where my home is, were minuscule compared to the people who live there day in, day out. And in some ways that allowed me to take more risks than they might have. Um, but, you know, overall, by orders of magnitude, they are facing way more severe risks um, than anything I ever did. But yeah, there were moments where like we were followed a couple times. There were moments where we were told we weren't, at one point they did think that we were spies and, you know, parts of our team were held for a little while um, against their will. And yeah, there were definitely some, some sticky moments for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, should we go into the fire scene and then have a chat about that? But um, cause uh, yeah, I think that might be a good, good time to play this next clip. Sounds great. Yeah. Here we watched a clip from the trespassers sequence, which occurs one hour and nine minutes into the film. Wow. You really did like capture the scale of deforestation and but at the same time make us care so much about it emotionally on a visual level. And, um, and I thought, the, you know, those big wides kind of contrasted with immersive handheld fluid cinematography works so well. But also sound design was very much part of that. Uh, it's a huge emotional layer in the film. Um, will you tell me a bit about the process of that? Yeah. Um, so this scene, you know, <laughs> we had hiked into the forest about seven hours in order to get this scene. And we didn't know they were going to be burning anything at all. It was just we were thinking we were filming an invasion Um until somebody came running down the the trail with this burning branch. And so in order to keep things really light, I had only packed a a 35 millimeter prime. And so the whole scene in the forest with the burning is is just filmed on that one um, 35 millimeter lens. And, you know, I actually quite like the way that it came out, um, you know, just more consistent and um, a little bit more structured in that way. But yeah, one of the things with, with the burning that I felt there during the moment was, you know, the, the rainforest is so alive with sound all the time. Um, it's this cacophony of, of animals calling to each other and mating calls and distress and all sorts of things. Uh, and it's, it's really beautiful. And as soon as the burning started, you could hear animals kind of leaving and running away. And so we wanted to get that sense of, um, you know, not just the loss of, of tree life, but of animals and, you know, thinking about the different types of life that's in the rainforest. And so uh, with the sound design team and our, our composer, Katya Mihailova, um, tried to build uh, a cue for this section that felt a, a bit like a song, but also interwove with the sounds of the burning and the crackling of trees. And so on one of our last production trips to Brazil, Katia, the composer, actually came with me and recorded a bunch of different types of sounds, you know, sounds of, of burning forest, she took a, a contact microphone and put it um, just inside of a, a really old tree as that was being cut down by some legal loggers. And that splintering sound of, of the fibers of the tree before even like the thud of it falling, all of those are kind of woven part instrumentally, part just, you know, sonic fabrically into this scene um, in different ways. And, you know, trying to create some rhythms out of the knocking of a branch and, uh, we had a lot of a lot of fun actually in in the sound design working with that. 
Um, so cool. I mean, it's so visceral. It's like and the rainforest is so much a character in the film, isn't it? Um, I mean, also like all those stunning um, insect and animal shots in a lot of those macro shots. How, will you tell me what you were trying to do with that? It's really. I yeah, I think, you know, the, the rainforest is sometimes hard to, to capture because at eye level, it just presents as a wall of green. You know, it's so dense that it's hard to get many of the layers that you feel when you're standing there. And so through sound design, tried to build out, you know, this, this sense of layers of the rainforest by adding different sounds. And when the camera moves, making sure the sounds move with it so that you're really spatially oriented within the rainforest. Um, and trying to spread it out as much as possible. So we we actually remixed after Sundance in Atmos and tried to make it feel as much as possible, like you're really there in the rainforest along with these things. Um, and then visually, you know, through the cinematography, knew that we wanted a story that could exist at eye level with our characters. You know, it's a human story. Um, it's not a story with talking heads. It's not a story about the science and, and those numbers, but wanted to be able to show the scale of what's being lost you know, this is a huge ecosystem and, and massive amounts of trees are being lost. It's not just a regional story. We didn't want it to feel small in that way. Um, and then at the same time, also wanted to kind of drill into the, the rain. I think of the rainforest almost like a fractal, you know, the, the deeper you zoom in, the more of a world emerges, the more of a universe presents itself to you. That's such a great image. That's great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so, so trying to get those macro shots where you're able to see, you know, just one caterpillar or one butterfly or one ant, um, because they're really, it's like worlds within worlds in, in the rainforest. There's so many different layers of these interactions. And so then moving between these really wide images of like satellite time-lapse where you're seeing the scale of forest lost over you know, decades and decades and how that also like a fractal or something exists in these patterns. There are these fishbone patterns where one road goes in, new roads jut off the sides and then it fractures and splinters apart. Um, showing that as well as the kind of minutia of the rainforest itself felt like a nice way to broaden the story um, from this one regional conflict into something that spoke to more universal levels. Yeah, well, you did that so well. Um, I just realised I never asked you, Sean, if there are any more questions. We have had a couple come in. Um, oh, should we pause for them? Uh, yeah, um, I, I'll go for the first one. Um, so Ali asks, often when we use UGC, I find people have very strong opinions about whether as filmmakers we pay contributors for letting us use their content or getting them to film for themselves. Did you face questions in this way and how did you answer them? And uh, Ali also thanks you both very much. Um, it's been great so far. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. And we had tons of conversations about this primarily because, you know, I think that's a question whenever you're, you're working with participants and they're also filming. Um, those questions are then heightened when you're working in a community where uh, there really isn't a formal economy. Very few people in the Uruwau have jobs. And so the idea of bringing money into this community could cause social conflict in unforeseen ways. Um, you know, when one family is seen to be getting rich off the film and another family isn't because maybe they have more young, able-bodied people who can go out and do the cinematography work. Um, and so we, again, had to have all these conversations uh, in community and, and talk about them as a full group. And what we landed on was 
you know, the Uruwau also are, are very communally oriented. So they didn't want that situation where one family is becoming, you know, well endowed by the film and another family isn't. And so two thirds of the money from any day rate for filming, which was consistent across the board, would go to the individual and one third would always go back to the association. So the association itself, which represents all of the different Uruwau, um, would be seeing the benefits of, you know, whoever was filming. And then we also really worked to provide opportunities for people who maybe they had kids and they weren't able to go out and film surveillance missions, which was a lot of what we were filming with them during COVID, um, that they could be involved in, you know, executive producer roles and helping think through the story and negative stereotypes against Indigenous people and how we could counteract those and talking about, you know, scenes and footage and uh, all sorts of other stuff. So, you know, that was kind of where we landed was, you know, we, we did want to pay people for their time. It wasn't something, you know, it wasn't a, a huge day rate, but it was consistent with the other local cinematographers that we worked with, um, Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Uh, but then the other rule we had was that if you were filming, you couldn't be part of the film. So, um, you know, none of the cinematographers that we worked with are then appearing on camera because we didn't want to have a sort of performative aspect to the film. We wanted it to, to be real and, and to feel real to the audience as they're watching. Wow, that's so fascinating. And that, like, what, what scenes um, in the way they, um, you know, those discussions and how they wanted to be portrayed, are there any scenes that you never in a million years would have thought of and that the Uruwau came up with? Uh, you know, what, what moments in the film are the ones that surprised you most? Yeah, they really didn't want, um, you know, this idea of kind of exotifying Indigenous people was something that they really pushed back against. And they felt that a lot of, especially outside filmmakers had come and made films that showed their traditional livelihoods, which are very important to them, a huge part of their culture, um, but then stopped there you know, and, and then didn't show the ways that they are using media and cell phones. And, um, you know, they they really wanted to make sure that this film, there's a thing that Bolsonaro and people on the right in Brazil say in order to denigrate indigenous people, they call them iPhone Indians. Meaning that if you have a, a you know, nice smartphone and you're engaged in the media and you're politically active, you can no longer claim access to the indigenous identity. If you live in a city- You're not you can't real be... indigenous. <laughs> right. Meaning that the only real indigenous people are ones that aren't causing any problems for them as politicians or, or business people. And Bitete and the younger generation just rejected that false binary outright and said, no, I am technologically sophisticated. I am media savvy. And I am in touch with my culture and my historical roots and my connection to the land. Um, but that both are possible and both can, can feed each other. And so that was one of the things we, we talked a lot about was how to kind of strike that balance of respect for the land and this deep, you know, uh, emotional relationship to it while also kind of honoring their sophistication and, and media savvy. Yeah, God, that's, honestly, it's such an inspiring, I uh, feel kind of fresh, kind of um, filmmaking, you know, I think. Um, Sean, was there another question? There is one more. Um, I'm aware we've only got five minutes of sort of official time left, but it would be great to maybe um, run over a little bit if if we can just to kind of make up for the sure. lost time at the beginning. 
But um, it might be good to close off on that one, Jenny, if you've got some more questions for Alex. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, Alex, how, I, I know that this film was a real labour of love. How, d- how did you, how did it work funding wise? Like, did it start off being something that was almost self-funded? How did you get Sundance and Nat Geo on board? How did Darren Aronofsky get involved? And you know, how, and how did all those people change the film? I mean, I think it's so interesting yeah. having a drama, um, you know, having that drama influence on the film from Darren. I'd be really interested in, you know, what effect that had. Yeah. Um... It's it's like one of these stories that I sort of thought didn't exist anymore in the film industry where like, you know, it's it's my first feature film. We we started out really on grants from within the industry, Catapult, um, a small development grant from the Sundance Institute. Um, the first plane ride down to Brazil was myself and my best friend both put in a thousand dollars for a one-way ticket and said, <laughs> I think this could be a story. And just slowly built, you know, hundreds of grant applications. And most of production was was really just grants um, and, you know, taking out time where we could and, you know, deferring payments for a lot of really dedicated people. And then during the edit, uh, we were able to really at the beginning of the edit, put together an investment finance package with a couple of uh, bigger organizations. Luminate was one, Time Studios was another, and Sigrid uh, Ducare. A Danish producer was the third. Um, and that got us through the edit and into festivals. And we were lucky enough to get into Sundance and then at Sundance sold the film to National Geographic, who are just absolutely ideal partners in so many ways and have treated this film uh, with so much love and allowed us, you know, even little things like that we had a theatrical release for this film in Brazil, in the country where it was made, but not, you know, the biggest theatrical market. And that we were able to do that three weeks before people went to the polls for the first round of the presidential elections. So, you know, huge amounts of support from them and and we're really, really lucky. How amazing. So maybe, maybe it had a, (laughs) maybe if Bolsonaro didn't win stands for territory, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then Darren was, the same kind of thing where like, I didn't know anybody in the industry, um, you know, having studied science and both my parents are not in film at all. Um, I would go to these speed dating things. So I did the Sheffield meat market. I did, you know, IFP week, Gotham week. And it was there that I met a couple of people that worked for Darren and, you know, his company is called Protozoa. And I was kind of like, what, you know, I don't, maybe I won't take this meeting. They sound kind of small and, you know, I've never heard of them. Uh, and they really responded to the footage and I learned it was connected to Darren and so invited me into their office and I brought all the raw footage from a couple of our trips and they looked at scenes and shots with me and talked about the story and helped us put together a plan for how to finance it um, and talked through a lot of, you know, Darren as, as a fiction director had a lot of thoughts about how to structure the film and really make it feel like a story um, that, that has a structure and has a plot um, and and I was really grateful for that, especially early on. You know, as, as a first time director, it was so lucky to have that kind of mentorship. What a mentor! Fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, and when did like Passion Pictures and Lizzie Gillett and people like that get involved? Was that post Sundance yeah. as well? Or... 
No, Lizzie was from Sheffield Meat Market. Uh, oh, <laughs> one of these speed dating things. I I was on there and myself and Will Miller, um, my best friend and a producer on the film, uh, were there and we we pitched her and and you know I think we we're I think the only project that she came on board with from from Sheffield that year. She just totally understood having done the Age of Stupid and had some really ambitious impact goals around that. Um, she understood, I think, the the potential for the film and appreciated the way that we were approaching it. We, you know, made sure to hold on to all rights for the film until the very end, um, said no to some funding opportunities in order to be able to keep all the rights to the project until Sundance and, and hopefully have a deal with somebody like Nat Geo. Yeah. Um, but she's a wonderful producer. It's great. She's the best. I yeah. love Lizzie yeah. so much. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, listen, I've got so many more questions things to talk about but given that it's eight maybe we should let um the last question come through but thank you so much it's been such a pleasure chatting to you it really has yeah you too yay yeah thank you very much both um before i officially wrap things up i will ask this final question um alex i imagine that the, the reception for these people was incredibly important to you so this question feels quite fitting what was the very first viewing with the indigenous people like and what was how did they feel about the film um the first viewing with the uruwa was really hard um you know for them this is a a difficult difficult film to watch it's not um especially you know the scenes with ari um, land really differently when you're watching it with his immediate family. Um, and so we all cried a ton. It was really um, moving and, and sad, but also, you know, I think for them having this living testament to his life and being able to share that with other people and help demand justice, you know, demand that the police do their job and arrest whoever's accountable for this um, was, was really really beautiful. And then we had a, our premiere in Brazil was in Sao Paulo at Etude Verdade. It's a festival there. And um, nearly half the audience was indigenous from surrounding communities. People from all over had come to see the film. Uh, and then at our theatrical release in Brazil, most of the screenings we had, you know, a quarter of the audience, a big proportion were indigenous people as well. And so it's been really, really, really wonderful to see how the film has been received there. And to see how Bitete and the Uruwau are, are getting all of this love as well. Um, a lot of their work had been happening in the dark and, and in quiet. And for them to be receiving all of this love and, and admiration from other people who they respect, uh, I think has given a, a new energy to their movement as well. Incredible. Well, it truly is a, a beautiful and an important film. So thank you again for doing this we really do appreciate you sharing your experiences and your expertise and jenny as well you've been absolutely fantastic so um take care everyone bye-bye Bye. <laughs> this podcast was recorded at a directors uk member event you can hear more episodes of the directors uk podcast on itunes soundcloud spotify or your favorite podcatcher directors uk is a professional association for film and tv directors with over 7,500 members Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.